0: Bookshelves Live. I'm Sarah of Sarah's Bookshelves. Each week, I talk with a bookish guest about two old books they love, two new books they love, one book they do not love, and one new release they're excited about. We're going to get real and sometimes a bit snarky about all things books. If you like the show, I'd love it if you follow the show in your podcast player, spread the word to your reader friends, post about it on your social media, or support the show on Patreon at Patreon dot com slash sarah's bookshelves supporting the show on patreon gets you access to bonus podcast episodes and lots of other goodies there's also a link in the show notes and in my instagram bio let's get rolling welcome to the fall 2023 circle back episode where we share our thoughts on books we shared in the fall preview now that we've had a chance to read them Catherine from gilmore guide is joining me as always welcome Catherine. hi thank you Before we get into all of our circling back to fall books, I did want to talk to y'all about the 2024 Reading Tracker because that time of year is very quickly approaching. We are going to be dropping our 2024 Reading Tracker on Wednesday, December 6th, and just like last year, the Tracker will be exclusively available to $7 a month Superstars patrons only. It will not be available for individual purchase. Though, you can certainly sign up to be a patron for one month to get the tracker. And hopefully, after you see all of the great content we offer to our patrons, other than the tracker, you might decide to stick around. I've been releasing updated trackers every year since 2018. And this year is our seventh reading tracker, which is kind of hard to believe. Catherine, I remember when like I first put this together and I sent it to you and Susie. And I was like, I'm thinking about giving this away as a freebie. <laughs> To anyone that signs up on my website and gives me their email address and you said what?
1: Uh, no. <laughs> charge for it. This is crazy.
0: You were right. And certainly to the point where it's gotten now, like you have to charge for this. It is, takes so much work.
1: Oh, I imagine. Yeah.
0: The first time I did the tracker, it was a lot simpler and... It was a
1: little more straightforward.
0: Correct. But every year it has grown and grown and grown. So our tracker is in Microsoft Excel. But it can be uploaded to and used in Google Sheets as well. And after you enter raw data about the books you've finished and DNF'd, that's really important because it helps all the stats, it automatically calculates tons of statistics about the books you've read, types of books that are most successful for you, diversity stats, DNF stats, recommendation sources, and more. Since I started using my tracker in 2018, I've learned so much about what types of books work for me and types of books that don't work for me, which is equally as important. True. And my reading success rate has improved by 43%. Wow. And the tracker helps me track that number. Most every year since 2018, we have added the ability to track more and more things. I do have a feeling this year though, And this is the first time I've felt this way. But there is such a thing as overkill with reading tracking.
1: I think so. Yes, I agree. As a reader,
0: (laughs) yeah. Like you don't want to drown in information that is so overwhelming that you're not going to find useful nuggets, right? Right. I do feel like reading tracking in general, there's other trackers out there too, have gotten to this point where we are teetering on the edge of overkill. Right. So for 2024, while we did add a few new items, We really focused on working on making the tracker easier to use and easier to navigate. We separated charts and graphs out into a new at-a-glance page for quick reference of data that makes sense to be displayed in a chart or a graph, like a pie chart or a bar graph, something like that. If you prefer looking at actual numbers, and I actually do kind of prefer actual numbers, you can still do that on our dashboard page. It has numerical tables for every single stat that we track. I added a re-rating column, and this is also called the Suzy column. Oh, (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I love that. It was at (laughs) Suzy's request, and this is because she tends to rate a book right when she finishes it, and then months later, we'll change her rating. Interesting. We now have two separate ratings columns where you can put your initial rating and then maybe a re-rating later on if you like to do that. And I do it very occasionally, but not as much as Susie. (laughs) I love it. We've also added dedicated tracking for celebrity book clubs and literary awards, including percent successful stats for those items. And I think knowing this information is really helpful to figure out which celebrity book clubs you want to pay attention to and which ones you don't. Because sometimes it's easy to pick up, let's say, the Reese pick, just because Reese's name is on it. And you need to figure out whether Reese is one of your reading twins or not, right?
1: Right, exactly. You may... like Reese as an actress, but what she reads is not of interest.
0: Totally. And I'm hit and miss with Reese, by the way.
1: Hmm. Okay.
0: We also added a new successful books by release month chart. Anecdotally, I have started to believe that there are certain book release seasons that are more successful for me and my reading taste than others. So this is going to help me get a numerical handle on this information. Plus, we've added some smaller things throughout. So look for this soon, and there will be a full blog post on my website about it, as well as links on my Instagram and in the show notes to become a Superstars patron to get the tracker. All right. Fall books. How did things turn out for you, Catherine?
1: You know what? Overall, outstanding.
0: Way to go. It has been a while since you responded that way to that question. I know, right? I actually did
1: have to go back and look at my previous stats. This fall, I had an 83% success rate. Last year, I only had 50%, and I only had 50% for this summer. So I'm very, very happy. And I had no DNFs.
0: Oh, that's awesome. I'd take those numbers any day.
1: I know. I'm very, very pleased with how well it all worked out. But how about you?
0: So I had a pretty average fall season in terms of my success rate, which was 67% success rate. Four out of six books that I shared in the preview were successful for me. And that was the same as summer. But I will say that 67%, four out of six, is a fantastic showing for me for fall because fall is not my season, as I mentioned earlier about the reading tracker and the ability to track this kind of stuff, right? Right. I avoided most of the quote big books of fall in my selections. I chose a lot of crime, fiction, and nonfiction, which worked well for me. And I ended up with a couple of very highly rated books. And I still haven't read most of the big books of fall. Really? Okay. No. I have not read Vaster Wilds. I have not read Let Us Descend. I have not read well, I've tried to read Wellness and I just DNF'd it. I haven't read The Fraud.
1: I haven't read any of those either. So right. <laughs>
0: Yeah, these are like the big chunky things everybody's talking about this fall. And that's just not my cup of tea. So I had two five-star reads and one additional four-and-a-half-star book and one DNF. But I will take three books that are four-and-a-half stars and above any day.
1: Oh, uh, that's great. I agree.
0: And I'll take a DNF in with that too. Sure. All right. So how we're going to do this today, we each shared six books in the fall preview First, we will briefly mention the books that we had already read when we recorded the fall preview, and this time around, that is one book for me and two books for Catherine, which is a rarity. Usually, I have pre-read more than Catherine has, <laughs> right? but we're not going to share our full thoughts about those since you've already heard them in the preview, and then we will update you on how all the other books we shared ended up panning out for us. So, Catherine, kick us off with the first book that you had already read when we recorded the fall preview.
1: All right. It's The English Experience by Julie Schumacher and is the third novel in a trilogy that I've thoroughly enjoyed about a cranky college professor at a third-tier school. He gets roped into taking a group of students on a three-week trip abroad to England, and it goes as badly as can be imagined. Horrible for him but humorous for readers, especially if you've read the first two books. One of the keys to my enjoyment of this novel is the formatting. It's largely epistolary, with emails and texts between the characters, as well as the student's application to the program, most of which have nothing to do with the subject they're studying. The author keeps the characters from being caricatures with these quick peeks into their personal lives, which makes the novel funny, but not silly. That's the English experience, and I gave it four stars for pure entertainment.
0: Let me ask you a question about how you read the books in this trilogy, because I tried—well, actually, I didn't try. I read the first book in the trilogy after you shared this.
1: Okay, dear committee members. Yes, Okay.
0: And I read it sort of straight through, but I felt like I would have preferred to have read it in small snippets, maybe as a reset book, because I started to get a little sick of the shtick by the end. Okay. It felt like shtick to you? By the end, not in the beginning, not even the first half, but like the second half did. Yeah. So do you read them straight through or do you kind of read them in smaller snippets?
1: Now, I read them straight through, but I could absolutely see, yeah, a reset fiction book, just kind of when you want a little lift. Yeah. I could see doing it that way for sure.
0: Or if you have some huge block of reading time, like four hours, I mean, that never happens to me, but (laughs) I guess it does to some people (laughs) and you're reading one book and you're like, oh, I need a little break and take 20 minutes and read a few of these letters and then go back to the other book. Like, I think that's how I should have read.
1: Right. Because they are by and large humorous. They're very snarky. Totally. And they're also not long.
0: No, not at all. So
1: I can see why it could start to feel like stick towards the end, but at least, I mean, I think they're all under 300 pages, but I could absolutely see.
0: Oh yeah. I mean, I think they're closer to like 200. I do too. Yeah.
1: Pick it up and put it down because yeah, there's no through line that you need to remember. When you open it and start reading again, you'll be like, oh yeah, that's right.
0: Yeah. Good point. So. All right. All right. My only book that I had already read when we recorded the fall preview was Happiness Falls by Angie Kim, and it's my favorite book of the year so far, and you've already heard from Angie on the podcast, so we have really covered this book, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm not even going to give, like, the plot synopsis because we've truly already covered this book. It's five stars for me, even though it is in the same lane as Miracle Creek, which was her debut, and her lane is literary mysteries involving kids with disabilities or illnesses, Happiness Falls feels very fresh and unique to me. If you're going into this for a fast-paced mystery, that is not what this is. It's an intricately layered family story with a mystery also. But I would lead with the family story part of this genre mashup. And this book has serious heft. There's lots of Psychology and research into happiness as sort of an emotion. And it's very voicey. I loved the voice of this book. I do know that now that it's been out a while, the voice of Mia, the main narrator, is a little divisive among readers. I know some people who really did not like Mia's voice, but I did.
1: Yeah. I read it and I DNF'd it at 96%.
0: Catherine! (laughs) I know. I'm so sorry. 96%? Yeah. I've literally never heard of getting that far in a book and not finishing it.
1: So I know I'll just share briefly. I didn't read it. I didn't as a hate read. I just didn't care anymore. Yeah, I'd let slide the aspects that bothered me because I was so invested in Eugene's story. But after that, I quit reading. And For me, the two most unlikable characters were the narrators. And while I could cut Mia some slack for her age, I didn't think much of the father.
0: Oh, interesting.
1: And I absolutely hated everything about the happiness quotient.
0: Oh, oh, see, I loved that. But I did think that the research into happiness and the exploration of what makes somebody happy or not was interesting.
1: Okay, yeah. And also, I mean, I freely acknowledge I hate math. Oh. So the minute equations appeared on the page, I'm like, no. And I started skimming those sections. Yeah, I just, I loved Eugene's story. And that was it. I felt like it was kind of a bit sensationalistic about what happens with the father. But something I was really intrigued by is the statement Mia makes towards the end. It's about her programming work. And she wonders if there's a limit to the period of dissonance. And then she asks, at what point would the listener get frustrated and give up on the promise of resolution? And my head exploded because I thought, well, that's exactly where I am. (laughs) Is that Kim's point? Is that meta?
0: Interesting.
1: It had all stretched out for too long and I wasn't interested anymore. I had no attachment to anyone in the family or their story. And I just was like, okay, I'm not finishing this book. I don't care enough, but I'm sorry.
0: Well, that might be a new record for point at which you dnf <laughs> I know,
1: I know. And I do respect Kim. I mean, her intelligence and creativity. I gave the novel 2.5 stars. Okay. I didn't hate it. And I love her writing, but no, it didn't work for me. So, oops.
0: (laughs) Well, you and Susie both. Right. (laughs) I'm on my own little island out here. No,
1: I don't think you are because I think plenty of people really, really enjoyed it. So,
0: And I'm okay being on the island anyway, even if they didn't. (laughs) That's right. An island is could be very nice. Yeah. Palm trees. Don't hate those. (laughs) No, the beach. (laughs) Yeah. All right, Catherine, what is your third book you had already read when we recorded the preview?
1: Sure. It's William Kent Kruger's The River We Remember, and I absolutely loved it. It's a mystery set in 1950s Southern Minnesota, where a wealthy man is dead and suspicions fall on a Native American employee on his ranch. Of course, there's more to the story, but the two things that drew me in and made me want to read more of Kruger's books are one, how he weaves multiple themes throughout a story. It's a murder, but so much more. And I think you've started classifying these as literary mysteries.
0: Yeah. I mean, I didn't start classifying them as that. I think like lots of people do that.
1: Okay. Well, that's, I think, where I would land with it. And then two, the care and depth he gives to all the characters. There are no ancillary characters. Each and every one are perfectly rendered with emotions, motivations, prejudices, and stories that are relatable in the real world. So that, plus the moments within Kruger's prose, the sentences that make you pause, made The River We Remember five-star fiction for me. And I can't think of a reader who wouldn't enjoy this book, including you.
0: I have never wanted to try him. Me either. But like, this is looking a little intriguing to me.
1: Yes, Sarah, I'm trying to think, and I'm not going to come up with it in time for this episode, but there's someone that we both liked a long time ago when we were just blogging and that's who he reminds me of. And you loved this person. So I would recommend it.
0: Well, this is going to keep me up at night now.
1: (laughs) I know. No, I'm going to go look, of course. I'm going to go back. All
0: right. We'll figure this out.
1: That's right. All right. So I guess now we go on to the the new stuff.
0: I am going to start the books that we had not read when we recorded the preview with a book I had a very interesting experience with. I rated it five stars when I first read it. I have now knocked it down to four and a half for a very specific reason that I will share with y'all. It's the Susie column on the tracker. Oh, I know. Yes, yes, yes. This is exactly, too bad I don't have it on my 2023 tracker. There you go. Absolutely. And I'm still kind of, I don't know, my heartstrings want to give it five still, but I rationally have this one thing that I need to.
1: All right. Let's hear it.
0: Work through. Okay. This is Bright Young Women by Jessica Knoll. And this is a novel based on true crime. So the true crime in this case is the serial killer, Ted Bundy, and he is referred to as the defendant in the book. Specifically, this book deals with his Florida State sorority house murders. Jessica Knoll takes these real crimes, which took place after Bundy's Pacific Northwest killing spree and fictionalizes a story where two women, one who is a witness to the Florida State murders and the second who is close to the Pacific Northwest murders and looks at them as they kind of pursue the truth of what's going on here. The micro genre of fiction about serial killers that center the predominantly female victims is growing, I feel like. We've had Notes on an Execution. We've had The Quiet tenant. We've got Bright Young Women now. I'm always attracted to these books, but I tend to end up slightly disappointed by them because I feel like in an effort to center the victims, which I totally appreciate and am fully behind, some of these books also ignore the psychology of the killer or make him a cardboard cutout character. I can see that. Yeah. And I understand that this is the point since the author is trying to center the victims, but I actually kind of embarrassed to admit that I really am fascinated by what goes on in the brain of a killer.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And I'm just twisted enough to laugh when you say that. I get it, Sarah. I I know. Exactly. I can understand that. Yeah. I see that.
0: I want to know why they do what they do.
1: I don't think there's an answer is the thing.
0: And I don't really. That's why you keep reading this. And it's still interesting because it's never concluded, you know?
1: Right. There's no resolution.
0: No. But I think Jessica Knoll did the serial killer book that centers the victim the best I have ever seen it done. I agree. Rather than ignoring Ted Bundy or making him a cardboard cutout, she just totally demeaned and defanged him. Mm Mm-hmm. And she debunked the media's portrayal of him as brilliant, a cunning lawyer, incredibly good-looking. And her portrayal is based on fact. Like, she did the research and she's like, no, this guy actually was not this brilliant lawyer. He didn't do that well in school. The law school he went to was very low-tier because it was the only one he could get into. But the media at the time portrayed him as this, like, golden boy serial killer. And... She really did this in sly ways, which I loved. For example, she had the court reporter in the trial only referred to him as the defendant in the transcript, which hence why she refers to him only as the defendant in the book. She would never call him by name. Even the title is a perfect example of this. The judge in Bundy's trial called him a bright young man towards the end of the trial (laughs) And Jessica Knoll twists this phrase to refer to the women of the FSU sorority, which was known as the smartest sorority on campus.
1: I hadn't even thought of that, Sarah. And that is so smart. I love
0: that. Just clever, like not beating you over the head. but No, it's subtle. Yes. But
1: wow, I hadn't thought about the title at all.
0: Like she took care with the details like that.
1: Yes. Yes. Okay.
0: And the beginning of the book deals with the actual moments of the sorority house murders as they're happening. And this segment, just hang with me here. This is going to seem really weird when I say it. But this segment totally reminded me of The Only Plane in the Sky (laughs) in that it highlighted how little participants in a sort of catastrophic event understand about what is actually happening in the moment when it's happening. So it's hard for your brain to make the jump to the worst of the worst case scenario. So it likely is explaining away facts with much more innocuous explanations that are not at all true. But like, that's how you're responding in the moment. And that totally reminded me of the beginning of The Only Plane in the Sky, where things are happening kind of in stages. And so it's unclear to everybody the broad picture of what's going on.
1: Right. That it could be as bad as it ended up being.
0: Correct. Like no one's brain jumped to that in the beginning. I also loved how this highlighted how men in power don't listen to what women say or discount what women say. This happened during the trial. This happened during witness interviews. Like the main character in this book is telling the cops things that she saw or whatever. And they're they're, like discounting what she says. So here's my issue, my half star issue. I really wanted an author's note, letting us know the big things that she kept true to the story versus the big things that she fictionalized and why she made those decisions. And we didn't get that. From what I could find on Google, there was a witness in the Florida State Murders named Nita Neary. And I'm guessing that Pamela, the witness in the book, her character was very closely based on Nita Neary. Now, here's the problem. After I finished, and this wasn't until after I finished, I discovered that Noel stuck very closely to the true aspects of the story in almost every part of the book, except with Ruth, who is one of Ted Bundy's Washington presumed victims. And in the book, she highly fictional, she gives Ruth this like big backstory in the book with some pretty hefty issues. And I initially could not find a real life victim that resembled Ruth But then I saw an Instagram post by the account A Tale of Two Littles. And this person grew up in Florida and was familiar with the real Florida State murders. And she said that Ruth is based on one of Bundy's real encounters with a woman named Janice Ott. But Ruth's story in the book does not at all resemble Janice Ott's actual story, like backstory, and not the story of the murder or the disappearance. Right. Her interaction with Bundy. Yeah. Just her personality and her family and all that stuff was apparently highly fictionalized in the story. And so I just wondered why she made this decision. Like everything else sticks so closely to the truth. Why was this one character really fictionalized and expounded upon? And like, what does Janice Ott's family think of that? And I think A Tale of Two Littles brought up all of these issues. And that's how I started thinking about them. And she made some great points. And that's how I was sort of like, huh, I don't really get the decisions behind that. But I'll link to a Tale of Two Littles review in the show notes so y'all can take a look at it.
1: That is so interesting because I also gave it five stars. And if I were to wobble, it would be the Ruth aspect because, yes, her life, that was a lot. And a part of me did feel like, is this really
0: necessary? Yeah. She had the most backstory of anyone in the book, I think.
1: Right. So I can see that. I'm going to... with five, just because I didn't quite feel it was necessary, but it didn't bother me enough to change my rating at this point.
0: And I mean, I, I could change it back. Right. <laughs> <laughs> my heart wants to change it back because I just loved reading this book so much. I just, my reading experience with it was phenomenal. I flew through it. I thought it was so smart. She did things different than everyone else that's trying to do this has done it. So, exactly.
1: And she just did it so. Well, I mean, you were in the 70s.
0: For anyone that's read her previous novels, The Luckiest Girl Alive and The Favorite Sister, I believe is her second novel. This is such a step up for her. I agree. Like this is a whole different ballgame she has walked into. And I hope she stays in this ballgame.
1: I think I read both of her other books and I don't know that I gave either one more than three stars.
0: They were run-of-the-mill thrillers. Right. And that was Bright Young Women by Jessica Knoll. All right, Catherine. Tell us about your first book you've now read.
1: All right. The Museum of Failures is 3D Umaragar's new novel. And it's the story of Remy Wadia, who's returning from America to India to adopt a baby. He hasn't been back for years since his father died because his relationship with his mother has always been strained. Now he feels guilty and so goes to check in on her only to find that she's been hospitalized and refuses to eat or speak. He realizes he needs to stay in Bombay, not just to help her recover, but to also try and reconnect. Once Umargar sets the present day stage, she shifts the narrative from Remy to Shirin, who is his mother and the past. From the beginning of the book, she's been portrayed as a negative, unhappy woman who found fault with everyone and was verbally abusive to both Remy and his father, but this look into her past unearths the events and choices that shaped her, events about which Remy knows nothing and which don't align with his memories of childhood. Umargar's novels always have a lot of layers, which is something that could cause them to collapse from too much weight. But she has the ability to sift through the disparate elements with such care and respect and honoring multiple perspectives that it works. So in this case, you've got religion, cultural values, teenage pregnancy, marriage, and most importantly, memory. So that's the Museum of Failures, and I gave it four stars.
0: Should I read it? Remember, I was going to have you vet this for me.
1: Yes, I think you should.
0: Okay. I loved Honor.
1: Right. I think you'll like it.
0: All right. So my next book is very different. Still in the crime genre, though. I'm just plowing through all my crime books right now.
1: (laughs) You're on a spree yourself.
0: I know, right? So one of the micro genres that I shared in the 2022 episode I did with Susie, so not this summer, but the summer before, was oral histories, fiction or nonfiction. I love an oral history format. And my next pick is a fictional oral history that is sort of a fictional true crime kind of thing. It reads like true crime, just like Bright Young Women did. This is Kill Show by Daniel Swern Becker. It's his debut adult novel. A 16 year old girl named Sarah goes missing, and her disappearance captivates the country. A TV documentary is made that follows her disappearance in real time, which goes horribly wrong. The whole documentary investigation, everything. All of it goes horribly wrong. So 10 years later, the people involved with the case and the documentary are now speaking out, and that's where the oral history is coming from. When I shared this on the Fall Preview, I wondered how a documentary could follow a disappearance in real time. I couldn't really wrap my head around it. I was sort of picturing like the OJ car chase, and I'm like, I don't know how this is going (laughs) to work. Mm-hmm. But the author did a great job with how this worked in practice in the book. Soon after Sarah disappeared, the case got on the national radar via social media. And an L.A. producer pitched a show that would follow the family of the missing child through the search and the investigation. So she embeds her crew with the family. And then she edits the episodes immediately and gets them on air very quickly. So like when one episode airs they don't know what the next episode is going to be because they're kind of filming it in real time. So the viewers are getting to watch the story as it develops. The author uses this setup to explore the public's fascination with true crime and tragedy. And this has been a running theme in novels this year, I feel like. Oh, yes. Big one. Like, might even quickly be getting played out within the span of one year.
1: (laughs) I could see that, yes.
0: Also the author explores how the media and national fervor surrounding a case can actually influence an investigation and sort of cause law enforcement to act in certain ways and make certain assumptions. And finally, it explores how the media can help an investigation by getting millions of eyeballs looking for a missing child. And we are also going to see this from a nonfiction perspective in the next book I'm going to share. I have some questions for you by Rebecca Mackay explored some of these same themes. I would say that was in a more literary way, while Kill Show is a more thriller kind of page-turner package. I loved the oral history format for this story. It really contributed to the fast-paced feeling of this book. And you can sit down and read this book in one sitting. It's not long from a page count. And the fact that it's an oral history means there's lots of white space on the page. And the story went in a direction I absolutely did not expect. Although you do kind of have to suspend disbelief at times, but I appreciated that it surprised me and this would make a great beach read, plain read. I agree. And that's Kill Show by Daniel Becker. Have you read this? Yes. Oh, you did read this. I didn't know that. I read most of your- Most of my picks.
1: <laughs> I know. And let's be honest, I have to give, because of you doing oh, the previous episode, I'm trying to pay attention to my notes and talk about the books I'm picking. But in the meantime, I'm also trying to write down all these titles of
0: what you're recommending. Well, you don't have to write them down. You have the episode playing in front of you. (laughs) That's true. I know. Well,
1: that's what one would think that I could figure that out. But no, I thought it was really, really good. And I also appreciated how they were able to maintain the tension throughout the novel, even though a lot of the surprises or spoilers happen pretty early. And I agree. I thought it was really good reading. I enjoyed it.
0: And this author apparently works in TV. So like, I can sort of see that in the way that he wrote this story. It's very adaptable, let's say.
1: Right. Okay. Interesting.
0: All right, Catherine, what's your next pick?
1: Well, I was very excited about The Hank Show, how a house painting, drug running, DEA informant built the machine that rules our lives which is my only nonfiction choice for fall. It's a biography of Hank Asher, the man who created Data Fusion, the algorithm that allows different networks and databases to share data to create more and more granular information on any number of subjects, whether it's someone's shopping habits, how much time they spend online, job information, or on a more professional criminal data so being used in the criminal justice system. It's both an asset and a curse. Unfortunately, my hesitancy about the technical aspects of the book have kind of panned out because I'm currently lost in the history of how we went from individual computers to networks to cloud storage.
0: You just lost me, even with those high-level words. (laughs) (laughs) Right. I just remembered.
1: And some of it I'm remembering because I mean, I do remember, I'm sure you, well, I think you do, Sarah, having a computer, but floppy disks, you couldn't share documents electronically. You had to copy them and give them to someone and they had to upload them to their computer. It used to be a lot. So I'm going to keep going. Because the synopsis mentions his code's impact on the 2016 election. But for me, this has turned into what you call a reset book.
0: Got it. Okay.
1: Okay. I have no idea when I'll finish it.
0: How far along are you?
1: I'm about 30%. Okay. So I would say if you work in the technology world, this would be a straight read. I would recommend it. You'll understand the programming details but for anyone else, it's kind of slower reading. So that's The Hank Show, and I don't have a rating for it yet.
0: Fair enough. All right. My next pick is a five-star read, and it is true crime. And it is the first true crime book I've rated five stars in quite a while. It's In the Light of Darkness by Kim Cross, and this is the true crime book about the Polly case. In 1993... Polly was kidnapped from her bedroom during a sleepover with two friends while her mom was elsewhere in the house. The case was all over the media at the time. I totally remember it. And it also made an appearance in Paul McClain's novel, When the Stars Go Dark, if any of y'all have read that. Actually, I know some of you have. There's new information in this book. And the author is the daughter-in-law of one of the case's top FBI investigators. She got unprecedented access to people and files many people who have never spoken out before. And this case also changed the way FBI solves crimes in some really big ways. Really high quality true crime, I think is hard to find. And I would put this in the echelon with I'll be gone in the dark and American predator, which I also thought was excellent. There's tons of information about criminal investigative procedures. If you're into that, which I am, you will love this. However, If you're not into that, you might get bored by some of these sections. It's also a bit maddening because, dang, the police came so close to saving Polly's life, but she slipped through their fingers. And I didn't know
1: that. I didn't either. And I've read this one as well and liked it as well. That was a gut punch, though. That was a gut punch. And that's the one part when we talk about how you don't get resolution. He's still alive. And yet there are answers about what happened to questions about what happened to her that have not been answered. Yeah. It's just very frustrating for her family, everybody. But anyway.
0: I also enjoyed how, well, enjoyed is a weird word, but you know what I mean. Right. How Kim Cross shined a spotlight on John Walsh in America's Most Wanted. I used to watch that show all the time as a kid. I don't think I understood the role that it played in improving the search for missing kids. I didn't understand how many kill like real killers it actually helped catch. and I didn't children know either. Escaped. Yeah, I had no idea. I, just, I was watching it as voyeuristic entertainment. Right. And also how fast America's Most Wanted is able to swoop in and film the episode and get it on the air. It was like a two-day turnaround or something for the Polyclass Class case. And I really liked that this true crime story had a large impact on solving crimes and how law enforcement treats a missing person's case. It felt like there was more of a purpose to telling this story than pure voyeurism. It is really long, but it does move fast. There are fairly short chapters, which I liked. And I think for me, this is by far the most high quality true crime I've read since I'll Be Gone in the Dark.
1: Yeah, I agree with all of that. And I also think you're exactly right. I really appreciated the discretion she used regarding the murder there's no sensationalistic details here she's very respectful so yeah if if someone's looking for a murder book this is not it
0: this is a law enforcement book
1: yes and i thought it was really really well done
0: yeah if you're interested in like police procedure like this is your book all right that was in the light of darkness kind of don't love the title hard to remember i know yeah On trend with this year, with these kinds of titles, I don't know, but In the Light of Darkness by Kim Cross. All right, Catherine, what is your next pick?
1: Well, I'm back in Asia with a familiar author and her new novel. It's Jean Kwok, and the book is The Leftover Woman. It's about two women. One is Jasmine, who's from rural China, but pays smugglers to get her to New York City so she can find her daughter. The daughter her husband told her had died because he wanted a son and China has a one child policy. The other is Rebecca, a publishing executive who seems to have it all, a loving husband, a successful career, and an adopted daughter she adores. Two women's lives are diametrically opposed, but both are facing the same dilemma. How far would you go for your child? Jasmine needs to work to pay back the smugglers soon or the repercussions will be dire, but being in the U.S. illegally and speaking only limited English means she has almost no options. Rebecca, on the other hand, is in no physical danger, but a crucial misstep she made at work has damaged her reputation and made her vulnerable to losing her job. The intense pressure means she's working even more hours, so her personal life starts to crumble. Her daughter seems to love her nanny more than Rebecca, and her handsome husband has gotten secretive. My thoughts. As the novel progressed, the plot twists and coincidences piled up in a way that detracted from the story for me. I'm noticing a need in many authors lately to layer on more and more surprises in their plots. And for some of them, it's necessary because their writing doesn't hold up. This isn't the case with Quok, So I think I was more sensitive to it. She doesn't need more in her novels. Her ability to portray the emotions and motivations that lie at the heart of her characters is more than enough. In this case, it's the two sides of the coin that is being a woman in the modern world. She parses the differences in Jasmine and Rebecca without negating either of their experiences. Yes, Jasmine is at much greater physical risk than Rebecca, but Rebecca is so tied to her public persona and learned behavior as to how she should act that it inhibits her ability to live fully. Both have much to lose in their own way, and this, the push and pull from so many forces, not the big reveals, is what I wanted. I really liked the novel, but didn't love it. So I gave it 3.5 stars, and that's The Leftover Woman.
0: Do you think it was all those kind of extra plot twists were publisher-driven? Did she normally write that way, I guess is my question? I don't think so, no. It feels
1: like it's getting her work is getting more that way. So yes, it's either...
0: Like maybe they're pushing her to be more commercial? That...
1: Could very well be. Interesting. Yeah.
0: Not great. But. Right. All right. My next pick is my only DNF of the day. It was also Read with Jenna's November Book Club pick. And that's The Sun Sets in Singapore by Kane Day Fadipe. And it came out October 31st. This is a debut, and it's about three women, all expats of Nigerian descent living in Singapore. You've got Dara, who is a lawyer from the UK. You've got Amika, who is a banker from Nigeria. And Lillian is a pianist who is in Singapore because of her spouse. All three women are dealing with struggles in their own lives, and they have to confront their past issues amid a handsome arrival who shakes things up. I only made it 10% through this. Oi! I know. I know. There's a very specific reason. This book kicked off with something that I have now realized is a big pet peeve of mine. Ooh, okay. The book opens with Dara's perspective, and she's the lawyer. And we are very quickly thrust into a conversation where Dara and some of her colleagues are talking at a corporate event about legal cases we don't know about and office politics with people we have never heard of and don't care about yet. And I felt like I was dropped into the scene without knowing much about the characters or what's going on and therefore having a hard time caring about trying to follow this ping ball match.
1: Okay. So you need more preparation. You need to be eased into.
0: Yeah. I just, and I've DNF'd another book for this exact same reason, because it dropped me into a conversation with multiple characters who I know nothing about yet, don't care about yet can't keep straight in my head because I don't know anything about them yet, and a zone out. Mm-hmm. Like for me, that's not a great way to draw me into the story. And to give this a fair chance, I did read the first chapter of each of the three women's perspectives. For me, there was no like a like real hook in any of them to draw me into the story and nothing that gave me a reason to want to keep reading. Womp womp. Womp womp. <laughs> That was The Sun Sets in Singapore by Kane Day Felipe. Apparently, Jenna Bush Hager disagrees with me.
1: I was wondering if she might be yeah, a celebrity book club that doesn't work for you.
0: I think, actually, great question. In the beginning, when she first started her book club, she really did work for me. But I think she's a little more literary these days than I particularly am wanting to read. Okay. She has not been as successful for me lately. Okay. All right, Catherine, what is your last pick?
1: I get to wrap up on a high.
0: Good. We'd love that.
1: That's right.
0: And I'm not doing that. So I'm glad you are offsetting me.
1: Right. I'm balancing us out. Carolyn, Margaret, Brooks, Whitaker, Wallingford, De Braganza Dean. Dear God. <laughs> also known as Kitty is the epitome of 20th century American wealth in Christine Coulson's new book, One Woman Show. The lure here is that Kitty is depicted through art in the novel. How can a woman be represented as art in a written format? Well, if you've worked at the Met for over 25 years and you have an incredible imagination, like Christine Coulson, it's effortless. She takes Kitty, a Manhattanite born to privilege in 1906, and retells her life as a valuable piece of decorative art. If this isn't astonishing enough, she does it in the form of wall labels, those brief descriptive squares mounted next to every item in a museum that gives its title, history, key facts, and provenance. And Kitty is flush with all of these. Her first display is as a masterpiece when she is five, and from there she goes on to showcases as dreamer, bride, and society force. It's only after her exhibit as third-time wife that the wear and tear begins to show in Kitty as a piece of art. Throughout the novel, she is cataloged as neatly and succinctly as any museum piece except within these short, factually accurate descriptions, Coulson's wickedly sharp and articulate writing leaves behind clues that expose the reality of Kitty's life. Aside from wanting it to be longer, because I don't even think it's 200 pages, I adored everything about this tiny, clever novel.
0: I do feel like it's smart to keep those novels short, though, Mm -hmm. because it's again, this is a sticky novel.
1: Yeah, it could be.
0: And you don't want it to get old. Right.
1: And so there's a lot of white space. Yeah. But I just appreciate her creativity. I think that's notable, but even more so is the fact that she executed her vision so superbly because initially, like any great piece of art, your eye is caught by the superficial elements she draws you in and holds you with the smaller details. She renders Kitty's cliched life as bored, wealthy woman with style, but it's the play of dark against light that elevates one woman's show from a knickknack to a masterpiece. And I gave it five stars
0: and that little last sentence you wrote was quite a masterpiece. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> Oh,
1: Sarah, you know, I can't help it. I'm too wordy.
0: No, you're so good at this. (laughs) I've heard of other people that have absolutely loved this book as well. Yeah. I loved everything about it. All right. I'm going to wrap things up with a book that wasn't like a total failure for me, but... I'm curious
1: about this one because I didn't read it and I know the author. So you kind of are vetting it for me. All
0: right. I am vetting it for you. I'm going to steer you in a different direction, though. Okay. So I've been really into female-centric spy thrillers lately. I've loved all my Katsu's books, Red Widow and Red London. This book is by an author who has worked for me in the past, but she has never written a spy thriller before. And it's The Helsinki Affair by Anna Petoniak. And her main character is Amanda. She's a CIA agent and the daughter of a Cold War spy. She's stationed in Rome when she gets pulled into an international conspiracy involving the assassination of a U.S. senator. And this case might require her to betray her father. So I gave this three and a half stars. I never wanted to DNF it, but it was fine.
1: (laughs) Well, it's like right on the edge for you because three and a half used to be a success. It's just this year you've gone to 3.75.
0: Yes, that's right. That's exactly right. Right. So it's... Sort of. <laughs> Almost. <laughs> it just felt a bit surface to me compared to Alma Katsu's female-centric spy thrillers. And I don't know if this is the reason, but I'm going to speculate for a second. Anna Petoniak wrote this because she loves spy thrillers and always lamented that they were written by and about men. So she decided to write her own.
1: Oh.
0: Now, Alma Katsu wrote her own because she has a very deep, decades-long background in intelligence work herself. Anna Petoniak doesn't have that. Okay. And I felt that in the reading of this book and in the execution. I felt like it was really missing deep layers of behind the scenes about how the CIA works and particularly women's experiences in the CIA. And I kind of love diving into that black box. And this just felt like it skimmed along the surface a little bit. The plot was not particularly surprising to me and I didn't understand the ending. I was just like, I can't put these pieces together in a way that I think I'm supposed to. And it wasn't because the ending's too brilliant for me. I don't know. It just didn't square up for me. Mm -hmm. And I do wonder what I would have thought of this had I not read Almakatsu's books prior to reading this one because I had something to compare it to. And I might've really liked it had I just read it in a vacuum and not constantly thinking about, okay, well, how does this compare to Red Widow and Red London? And I thought her last book, Our American Friend, it dipped a toe into the sort of political spy realm without jumping in like a cannonball. (laughs) But I thought that book was more unique and sort of better executed than this one.
1: I'm curious, Sarah, given that these are the kind of books that have worked so well for you,
0: they're sort of my recovery books these days. Right. Like some people pick up a romance, like I'm picking up a, a spy thriller.
1: Well, do you have any interest in, or are you going to read The Sisterhood, the nonfiction book about women in the CIA? I have thought
0: about it. Okay. It's on my radar.
1: I was just going to say, I have it. I haven't read it yet because nonfiction not working for me right now. But it seems like this novel would be maybe a substitute for it would be The Sisterhood, which would be the reality, which could be fascinating.
0: I've been kind of waiting to see some feedback on it, how dense it is. Okay. Because it could be super interesting, but it also could be written in a really dense way. And the author of that one, I believe it is Liza Mundy. And I have read a crime nonfiction of hers before, and I did not love it.
1: Oh, okay. Well, that's, yeah. Okay.
0: That was The Helsinki Affair by Anna Petoniak. And Catherine, tell us your best and worst of the season.
1: Well, again, I'm so excited. I broke my curse because normally the book I choose, hoping it'll be my best, ends up being my worst. I know, right? Right? But this time the book I was most looking forward to turned out to be my favorite. Seriously, I don't think that's ever happened. But anyway, it's one woman show And I absolutely loved it. And I think I should probably just retire now because that is not likely to happen again. So I can't be trusted. (laughs) (laughs) And my worst, of course, it's hard to pick, but it's going to have to be The Hank Show. It's not that it was bad, but I really was hoping it was going to be probably more fast paced and a book that I could recommend to you.
0: Right. Because it sounded interesting to me when you talked about it in the preview.
1: Right? And it is parts of it are really, the guy is wild, but it just didn't pan out in that way. So how about you?
0: Well, my best is In the Light of Darkness. I'm not going to go with Happiness Falls, y'all, because that was, I had already read that, right? So Happiness Falls is my number one book of the year. So that's obviously my best. In the Light of Darkness was my best out of the books I had not read when we recorded the preview. I also, like my heartstrings, I kind of want to throw Bright Young Women in there. And that was the book I said I was most excited about was Bright Young Women.
1: Oh, okay.
0: Even though there's that sort of rational issue in my brain about it.
1: Right. I was just gonna say, I could tie for my best book, Bright Young Women, even though I didn't pick it, but I could piggyback on you.
0: Yeah, you can tie it.
1: I absolutely love it. That was my other five-star book. So.
0: Awesome. And my worst was my one DNF, The Sun Sets in Singapore. And I feel bad saying that because I'm basing it off of my opinion of the first 10%. Mm, right. <laughs> Caveat, everybody. There you go. All right. Thank you, Catherine. You are welcome. As always, we will have links to all these books in the show notes, as well as a link to join the Patreon community to get the reading tracker. Now, The reading tracker is not available yet. It will be available soon. But if you join now, you will be in the hopper to receive the email right when the reading tracker comes out. And in two weeks, which is November 29th, literary agent Sarah Landis will be returning for our inaugural 2023 State of the Industry episode. I am so excited about this, y'all.
1: I am too. Oh, my gosh.
0: All right. Talk to you in two weeks. Thanks so much for listening to Sarah's Bookshelves Live. You can find show notes with all the books mentioned in the episode, purchase links and linked timestamps at sarahsbookshelves.com slash podcast. And that's Sarah with an H. You can also find me online at sarahsbookshelves.com, on Instagram at sarahsbookshelves, or via email at sarahsbookshelves at gmail.com.